All right. Let's look to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, the church of Laodicea. This is the final church in the seven churches of Asia Minor that Christ addressed in the book of Revelation. And not only is it the last church, but it is the most pertinent of all the churches in terms of its message to the modern evangelical church, particularly the American church. And so we look at verse 14, and we read as follows. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write this, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Well, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered. And I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God in heaven, indeed we pray, O Lord God, that you'd give us ears to hear this morning. Open our hearts and our minds. O Lord, our minds are darkened and our hearts are hardened apart from your grace. Sin and the corruption of the flesh block out the good that we need to hear. And so, Lord, we ask for your grace to be shed upon us. Pour out your Holy Spirit. May we hear what you say to us. And I pray for myself as well. O Holy Spirit, fill me and overshadow me. Take control of my, my mind, my heart, my lips right now. Use me as a, as a, as a vessel of honor to, to speak forth your will and, and to speak boldly for the truth. Oh Lord, I pray that in all of this you'd be glorified and honored and that today we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And I pray for our hearts this day, Lord, for those of our hearts that are lukewarm, that are tepid, and that are indifferent to you. Oh Lord, I pray that you'd warm the hearts of the people here today. Oh Lord, that we would, we would burn for you and burn in love for your glory. Forgive us, Lord, for our lukewarmness, we pray. Now may you take control of the remainder of this time in Christ's name, amen. Well, we draw to the conclusion here, and in this drawing of conclusion, it makes me ponder the importance of this message, as I just said. Considering that the church of Laodicea in many ways represents our churches today. Uh, now, there are many churches that have different problems in um, Asia Minor in the first century, which goes to show you that church problems aren't something only merely that we deal with today. They've existed all throughout the church age. 
As long as we live in a world of corruption and sin and death, there are always going to be problems within the church. And all of these churches we see are far from perfect. Now, the church of Laodicea falls into a very similar category as the church of Sardis, in that the Lord had nothing good to say about them. And uh, that, that is embarrassing, right? If the Lord is evaluating all these churches and there is nothing commendable, nothing good to say, that's quite embarrassing. And yet, this is a church. These are his people. And so as we look at the eyes of the Lord, as they look upon, as he looks upon our church and he looks upon our lives, what does he see? Is it commendable? Is there anything commendable at our church? Is it a church that he has nothing good to say about? Well, in this case, the church of Laodicea, although it gets a terrible assessment, at the same time, we're reminded that he loves the church. And I think that's the, that's the real uh, irony here is that you read about this church and think the Lord's done with it, but as in verse 19, it says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so Christ reproves us, and he reproves us how? He reproves us through the preaching and ministry of the word. When we come to church each Lord's day, the word is preached. It's not so much that I, Bob Genzera, am reproving the church, but the word of God is. And so we take heed according to the word of God. We seek by the power of the Spirit to align our lives with his will. Now, a little background on the church of Laodicea. Now, this is the last of the circuit of churches in Asia Minor. It's about 40 miles. It's about 40 miles um, to the southeast of Philadelphia. And it's about 10 miles away from Colossae. Now, we know that there is a letter written to the Colossians by St. Paul. And here is a church that was located in a city that was at the crossroads of two major trade routes. Consequently, it was a very wealthy city. It was well known for its production of black wool, which was a commodity um, in the ancient world and was very expensive. And those who dealt in black dye, were, or black wool rather, were, were very wealthy people. So there was a lot of wealth in this community, in this city. In fact, so wealthy was it that in A.D. 60, there was an earthquake. And we read about another earthquake. The same earthquake leveled a lot of these places. But Laodicea city was so wealthy that when the earthquake hit and there was massive destruction, the Roman Empire offered financial aid to rebuild the city. And Laodicea city says, no, we don't need it. We have enough money. We can rebuild ourselves. So it was a very well-off city. And the Christians, no doubt, were well-off as well. It was also home to one of the most famous medical schools of its day. It was, a, it was the capital of the ENT doctors of the day, ear, nose, and throat. They specialized in eyes and ears, and uh, they, they were some of the best doctors, and they were known for developing an eye salve, which was called uh, Phrygian powder, and it was made of ground stone, and they would make a, a paste out of it and put it on your eyes, and it would help bring down eye inflammation. And so this, this city was well known for it. But it was also known for having a poor water supply. In fact, there was no water supply whatsoever, and they depended on water from outside cities. Now, there were two water sources outside of Laodicea. There was a water source in Hierapolis. And you're like, what does all this mean? You'll see how this all influences the words of Christ, right? 
So there was water coming from Hierapolis, which was a center of hot springs. If you've ever been to any hot springs like Saratoga Springs upstate, or I've been to hot springs in California and in in, um, Colorado, right? These hot springs generate boiling hot water out of the ground, right? 110 degrees, and and yet a lot of it is is filled with um, uh, sulfur and, and, um, and sodium bicarbonate. So this water actually was built for an aqueduct right down to Laodicea. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it became lukewarm. It became tepid. It was no longer hot water that could be used for healing purposes. And there was a water foil right outside the city where people could see the water coming in. Also, there was water coming from Colossae. Now, the water from Colossae was cold spring water, ice-cold spring water. And that water would also take route to uh, Laodicea, and it would get lukewarm by the time it got to Laodicea, and that would be used for drinking water. Obviously, this plays into the language that is being used here in the Lord's assessment and evaluation of the church. Well, what does the Lord say? In no small words, he says, they make him sick. He says, you're neither, I know your works. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, and I will spew you from my mouth, or I'll spit you from my mouth. The spitting and the spewing is not really words that accurately reflect the original Greek. The actual Greek says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And so what the Lord is saying is, is you guys make me sick. How embarrassing is that? Yeah, Sardis was told they were a dead church, but he looks at Laodicea and says, you disgust me, you make me sick. And you know, I think it's important to see here that the Lord Jesus is not a, you know, when we think of Christ, we think of him as a pushover sometimes because in his earthly ministry, he allowed men to abuse him and crucify him. But now the Lord is sitting on his throne, ruling the heavens and the earth. He is king over his church. And when the Lord looks at a church that is acting in a way that is disgusting, he will say, you disgust me. That's harsh language. And that should be sobering. And as why would Jesus speak in such a harsh tone? And that's what we're going to look into today. So first, let's get into this idea of what it means to be lukewarm. What is lukewarmness and why does it disgust Jesus so much? Well, the traditional meaning of this idea of I would rather you be hot or rather you be cold, but you are lukewarm, tends to be the idea that I would rather you be on fire for me, right? Speaking of a spiritual mood and enthusiasm, or I'd rather you be against me and opposed to me than be lukewarm. I used to hold that view as well. The problem with that is we have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus rather have believers be unbelievers and hate him? That doesn't make sense. But the reason why I brought out the actual topography and geographical context of Laodicea is because the Lord is using that which they understood in their own living context to make send a point home, to send a message. It's a parable, if you will. And what he's saying is, it's like, listen, the water from Hierapolis comes in and it's hot. The hot water from Hierapolis brings healing 
to the bones. It's it's therapeutic to the body. There's a benefit to it. The cold water coming from Colossae is good. It it brings refreshment and it brings uh, it, it can be used for drinking, right? But lukewarm water is good for nothing. And I think that that's exactly what the Lord is speaking here. The hot water refers to the medicinal water of Hierapolis, the hot springs, and the cold water refers to the refreshing waters of Colossae. And what Jesus has in mind is saying the church is not being called to task for its spiritual temperature, but the barrenness of her works. He says, I know your works. They're neither hot or cold. In other words, your works are neither providing refreshment to the spiritual weary, and they're neither providing healing to the spiritual sick. The church was simply ineffective in its ministry. There was at no benefit the church was adding to those who were attending. And as a result, it was distasteful to the Lord. If correct, this relieves the problem of why Christ would refer to the church as he would rather them be cold than lukewarm, right? Because then what he's saying is, I'd rather you be like the cold waters of Colossae that bring refreshing to the church. But at this point, you bring no benefit to anyone. And the Lord can't stomach such behavior. The lukewarmness clearly represents not only the tepidness of their attitude towards Christ, but it also represented their uselessness to Christ. Probably one of the most graphic images that the Lord uses. Their approach to Jesus was disgusting, distasteful, and nauseating to him. But what about so many churches today? Is this not the case with many churches? We're not guilty of heresy, not guilty of compromise, but rather being useless, of no benefit to those who attend, of no benefit to the society, to no benefit to the community. We have to ask ourselves, what is our attitude towards Christ? Well, why were they lukewarm? The answer is right in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, and not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The problem was these people were overconfident, they were self-sufficient, they were complacent, and they were comfortable. They had it too good. Unlike the other churches that were suffering, that were being persecuted, this was a church that simply were lavished with wealth and prosperity and ease. Remember, Laodicea is a wealthy city. The people lived there had money. They were living good. And in their fine living and in their comfortable living, they became blind to their condition. They became self-sufficient. They became self-righteous. They felt that they had no... See, that's one of the problems. When you have a lot, you don't realize your need. That's why Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the rich man never sees his need for Christ. The rich man has everything he wants, everything at his beck and call. 
And so the rich man never has that desperation for salvation. He never has that desperation for God because he's too comfortable. The poor man cries out in desperation. The rich man is too too at ease to see his need for God. But it wasn't just the wealth, the material wealth, but it was, it was a spiritual blindness. Notice the terminology here. He says, you say I'm rich. I have nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That, that terminology used there is, is speaking of their spiritual condition. Now, make no mistake. These were good Christians. They went to church. They, they gave tithes to the church. They, they participated in, in the events of the church. And they went to work and they, they honored God and they paid their taxes and they obeyed the laws. These were not bad people. These were good moral people. But spiritually, they were in terrible condition. You see, many times we focus so much on our physical health and physical, focusing on your physical health is good, right? You don't take care of your body, it will, it will retaliate, right? I've experienced health issues this year. One of the things I came to realize, I was abusing my body. I wasn't taking good care of myself. What you eat and, and how you exercise and taking vitamins, these are good things. But you know why? You could see what goes on, right? If you get sick, you could feel it, you could see it, you go to the hospital, right? Spiritual sickness is another issue. You can't see it. See, many times we don't take care of ourselves spiritually. We malnourish ourselves. We don't, eat, we don't feast on the word of God. We're not in prayer. We don't fellowship with other Christians. We're not practicing the disciplines. We're living in very sinful habits and lifestyles. And we're blind to it. We actually think we're okay. If someone says to you, how are you doing with your, well, oh, I'm doing great. Me and the Lord, we're okay. Because we're blind. That, that, the complacency, the spiritual complacency blinds us to who we really are and to our true condition. Turn with me in John chapter 9 for a moment. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man born blind. When the Pharisees saw it, they were enraged. <laughs> right now, let's just think of the let's just think of this, right? A man in your synagogue who was born blind and suffered his whole life has just been healed. Then the you would think the right response of the spiritual leaders should be, oh wow, praise God. That's a miracle, right? You would be happy but they were angry. They were angry because Jesus did not conform to their understanding of the way things should be. And so rather than be joyful and to see the glory of God at hand, they were bitterly angry because it offended their sense of who God is and who God should be. And so it, it, they excommunicated the blind man because he gave glory to, to Jesus. They excommunicated him from the synagogue. So, so it says in verse 35, 
Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he was speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus says, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him said, heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. They thought they understood and saw. They didn't see their need. Had their eyes opened. The blind man represents those who know their spiritual condition. They know their desperate need and they seek Christ. Those who think they have it all together, those who think they're self-righteous, those who think they're good and they have no need, that everything's okay, they are the ones who are in the most need. What is Christ's reproof and advice? Verse 18, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and shame of your nakedness that you may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes. They had gold, but it wasn't spiritual gold. It was fool's gold. You see, the gold of this world, what did Jesus say? (laughs) Don't put your trust in money. Don't store your money up. Why? The moth destroys it. The thief will steal it. Rust will corrode it. Guess what? You know what lasts forever? Spiritual wealth. Eternal wealth. Store your treasures in heaven, Jesus says. That's what matters. No matter what you have in this life, you could lose it. I'm always conscious of that. I'm very blessed. I consider myself very blessed in this life. But God could take it all tomorrow, just like he did Job. And when he does take it all, the question is, who will you be? Will you grovel and, 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 and weep to death? Will you throw yourself off a bridge like so many do when they lose it all? Or will you say, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Buy white clothes from me. You see, he's talking about righteousness. We walk around with our garments of self-righteousness and think we're covered. And Jesus says, you're naked. Your flesh is peeking through because you're dressed in filthy rags. All right, the prophet Isaiah says, your righteousness is like filthy rags. The Lord says, come buy from me true garments, white garments, pure garments, and cover the shame and nakedness of your sin. But here's the paradox. He says, come buy from me all these things. But yet he says, you're poor. How can you buy something from God if you're poor and wretched? That's a paradox in terms. Well, the answer is simple. Sam Storms answers it this way. There's an obvious paradox here. He says, how can the poor people purchase a commodity expensive as gold? You do so with the only currency that counts in God's presence, need. The coin of the realm is desperation. 
We don't pay him out of our resources, but from an acknowledgement of the depths of our abject poverty. The price God requires is that faith in him which humbly concedes that no one has nothing with which to bargain, nothing with which to trade, nothing with which to make such a meager down payment. We come to Christ poor and humble and broken and we trust in him and he graciously gives. It's a reflection back to Isaiah 55. Right? Isaiah 55 gives us a, a similar uh, um, um, context. Go with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. Verse 1, Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, eat what is good. and Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. What Jesus is saying is come to him. Stop relying on yourself and being satisfied and content in yourself. Find satisfaction in me. I am the only one who could bring true fulfillment to your life. You see, once you find that, your heart changes, your view of life changes. This is what the Laodice- this is why the Laodiceans attitude was lukewarm. Their value system was mixed up. Their, their contentment and their joy and satisfaction was in this world. Not in Christ. What about us? Are we lukewarm? Do we find our joy and satisfaction in all that the life all that this world offers? We need our eyes opened with the eye south from Christ that we may see and behold that God is good, that we may behold the glory of Jesus, and that we may see, more importantly, our utter need for him. It's not until we see that. I know someone right now who, who has cancer, and that person is being offered the treatment, the, the chemotherapy. Here, if you take the treatment, you'll get better. It'll, it'll improve. You're in early stages, you'll heal. And that person will not receive the treatment. Christ is saying, here's the cure, here's the treatment. Will you not receive it? In our own stubbornness of will, we say no. The Lord is calling them to Revival. The Lord is calling them to revival. And so the cure is not only to come to Christ, but to repent. Verse 19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove. Now this is the the bright hope here. The bright hope here is that Jesus is saying, I love you. And I love you enough that I'm telling you as it is. That's the beautiful thing about God. God always speaks the truth. People don't do that, right? We're all afraid to offend people, so we lie to them, right? 
You go over someone's house, they cook a delicious meal. Well, they cook a horrible meal, what am I saying? And they say, how was it? Oh, it was delicious. And of course, that's being polite. I mean, we ought not to say it's awful, right? But, but the point of the matter is, we have a hard time confronting others with the truth. The Lord doesn't have that problem. He's telling the church, you guys disgust me. Now, here's the cure for it. Here's the cure. These, I love you enough that I'm telling you where you're at. Now, be zealous and repent. You know, the idea that the Lord loves us enough to reprove us is so important. It is precisely because Jesus loves them. He's not going to tolerate their lukewarm attitudes towards him. It's because Jesus loves his people, he will use such harsh language to stir us to repentance. It's what's called tough love. Sometimes love hurts. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Right? If you're a good father, you correct your kids. You tell them when they're wrong. You don't tell your kids they're right even when they're wrong. A good father disciplines their children when they're wrong because he loves them, not because he hates them. Actually, the scripture says if you hate your child, don't discipline them. In the same way, God disciplines those whom he loves. The book of Hebrews gives an expanded commentary on this. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read about the Lord's discipline in expanded form. In chapter 12, we read this. Verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This is going back to Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and you're not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short times as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Jesus is saying to the church of Laodicea, I love you so much, I will discipline you and reprove you, and that might be painful, but it's for your good, to shake you out of your blind stupor. Here's the warning here. If you're just carrying on in this lukewarm Christian life, complacent in your sin and complacent in moderation, and God's not actively disciplining you, then you have something to be worried about. Because then it says if he's not disciplining you, you're illegitimate children. You're not his son. You're not his daughter. You're not his child. But if God is disciplining your life, don't look at the suffering in your life as all bad. 
God is pruning you for good. He wants you to share in his holiness, to share in his righteousness, to get you off the junk food of the world and to get you on the health food of his word. Amen. Thank you, Lord. God is good. And so he calls us to repentance, to change, to shift our focus away from this life and the things it offers and to shift towards him. And then there's two promises offered. Two promises offered to those who receive the counsel of Christ. He says, behold, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come eat with him and he with me. So the first promise is the promise of intimate fellowship. Let me just say this. This verse has been traditionally used in evangelism crusades to call unbelievers to salvation. So the concept is this. You're an evangelist and you're preaching in a crusade and you say, Jesus is knocking on your door of your heart right now. You need to open up that door and let him in. Let me just say this. If you are one of God's elect and he has encircled you for salvation, the Lord doesn't knock at the door. He kicks the door down. And he comes in and he takes you. You don't accept him. That's the good news of salvation. On the other hand, this was written not to unbelievers. This is written to the church whom Christ loves, whom he's reproving. You see, the closed door is telling us that the church of Laodicea had shut the door and pushed Jesus out of the church. They kept on with their ceremony and they had their services and they sang and they preached and they fellowshiped, but Jesus wasn't welcome there. They pushed him out. And graciously, the Lord says, I'm standing at the door and knocking. And if you hear my voice, and we already know what that's telling us, John chapter 10, those who hear my voice know me and I know them by name. The elect of God will open the door and let Christ into the church and have fellowship with him. This is talking about intimacy. This is talking about having union with Christ. You see, the guiltiness of the church was that they were living the Christian life on their own strength, not in the strength of Christ. And the Lord is saying, if you really want to see the power, my power in the church, you need to repent Welcome me back to my church. John Piper says this, the opposite of lukewarmness is the fervor you experience when you enjoy a candlelit dinner with Jesus in the innermost room of your heart. And when Jesus Christ, the source of all God's creation, is dining with you in your heart, then you will have all the gold, all the garments, and all the medicine in the world. Amen? And finally, he gives us one more promise. So the one who conquers, verse 21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. <laughs> what more could we ask for? Romans 8 says we are co-heirs with Christ. 
1 Corinthians 6 reminds us that we will judge the angels one day. The Lord said to his apostles, you will rule with me on 12 thrones over the tribes of Israel. Who we are now is not what we will be one day. The most despised and wretched, uh, the, the scum of the earth, as Paul said, is how the church is regarded now. But one day, those who, who follow Christ wholeheartedly, those who serve him with passion and fervor and delight, will also rule with him one day. Jesus, when he came to this world, lived a life of suffering, shame, scandal, and poverty. He was despised and rejected by men. Now he rules at the Father's right hand. And the promise is for you and I, if we keep his word, if we stay true, one day we'll have a place with him. Here's the question. Do you want to be rulers with Christ? Or do you want to be ruled with the rod of iron by the King Messiah on Judgment Day? Well, the, the real answer to that question is, what do you do with Jesus now? You can continue doing what you're doing and do nothing. Just be indifferent to the Lord, whatever. I hate that word. Whatever. It's a sarcastic overtone, like, I don't care. And that's the attitude of the lukewarm Christian. Whatever. Judgment day, there'll be no whatevers. On judgment day, Scripture makes it very plain. We'll all stand before the king and give an account. It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. So let's live our lives in a way... Let's live our lives as we leave this place today considering Father's Day that we have a heavenly Father who loves us. Loves us so much he gave us his only son. And that through him and through his death and resurrection the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life is freely offered to all who trust in him. But secondly that if you have come to trust in him we have a father who loves us so much, he will discipline you so that you do not fall away with the rest of the world on judgment day, but that we'll share in his holiness. And although it may be unpleasant for the time being, it'll bring us closer to him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for this word today. Lord, you know in my own heart my own struggle with sin. It wasn't easy to preach today, but I thank you for the power of your spirit. And I thank you for your loving kindness. And I thank you for your word, which is more powerful than any two-edged sword. And so Lord, as you correct and reprove us today, I pray that we would hear, give us ears to hear and hearts to grasp, and more importantly, a will to repent. Change us, O oh Lord, from the inside out that we may glorify you in Christ's name. Amen.